You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. God, we pray. Coming into your presence, asking you for your word to come. Not just in word alone, but with power, with full conviction, and with your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. If you would, join me in standing for a reading of God's Word. And this is taken from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Four, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present yourself as members to God, instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can find your seats. Well, welcome to First Christian. It is so good to have you. We're welcoming you into this group of people who make it our goal to do one thing. We follow Jesus. That's what we're about. And so if you're interested in knowing who Jesus is and in following him, then you're welcome to join with us. We don't have it all together. But we are in welcoming all into that journey of following Jesus. So for all of you that are here today and for those that are joining us online, for those who are floating in balloons and maybe watching and streaming us, we're glad that you are here. So uh, recently, Don and I went on a long hike. And I was paying attention to the voices that I was hearing on the hike. You know how this works? You're, you're walking on a trail and you're heading one direction and people are going the opposite direction. So you hear these snippets, these bits of conversation that I kind of just started trying to string together in my own little mad lib way. I mean, some of the things they said make sense. This hike is too hard. I'm not walking anymore. Or one person said, this is like nine levels of Dante's Inferno. 
I mean, it gets, I get that. It's, it makes sense. We were going up Wheeler Peak, and that's the highest point in New Mexico. But some of them don't make, mis, mis, make any sense at all. No context at all. Like, the ones that really get me are kind of the bombastic people that are talking, and they don't realize that they're just like screaming in your face as they walk past. And so they say, I need a hammer. Just a good hammer. I don't, have, I don't know what they needed it for. I don't know if it was for me, or maybe they were camping somewhere, and they needed to put it... I don't know. And some are really interesting. Like, this was a complete phrase that I heard. And the young men were heading up on the trail. And an old woman came to them and said, don't go up that mountain. It's a mountain of death. But the young men went anyway. I really almost turned around to go hear what the rest of the story was. I I don't know what they were talking about. Well, you might wonder if maybe I'm hearing voices in my head, but I kind of got to thinking it might be fun to make these into a little bit of a mad lib. Because in our text today, Paul is carrying on conversations that are in his head, but they're also shared with us, also written down. And he asked some questions that we often sometimes ask. So even though it might not be Paul's voice, but it is definitely something that he's engaging. And he asked a question that maybe a lot of us ask who are believers. Do I go on sinning? Do I continue on the trail of sin? I mean, if God's given me this great gift of grace that washes away all of my sin, then why do I really care about sins? Whether they're big sins in my eyes or small sins. This conversation that we pick up today is one that Paul started. In the very end of chapter 5, he says, look, sin has a dominion. It has a realm that it operates in, and that dominion is death. And grace has its own kingdom, its own dominion, and that dominion is of life and righteousness. And so, whenever we look at this, a lot of times we think, all right, should I sin or not? I think I kind of know the answer to that. Should I go on sinning? A lot of times the way we answer it as believers or as non-believers is with behavior. We look at, focus at, if I'm going to change my life, then I really need to focus in on various behaviors that shouldn't be in my life. And that's our starting point, is with behavior, right? Isn't that even true of non-Christians? Like, I want to change this about myself, so I focus in on the behavior. Paul tells us a different story. He gives us a different voice in our ear that starts in a different place. Because God's answer is not to start with your behavior. God instead comes to us and creates a new status, a new humanity. And he creates and places that new status upon us like we are brand new human beings. And it's a status that's not based on our behavior. It's a status that enables our behavior. Did you get that? It's going to be really important for you to hold that in your mind for the duration of our conversation today. That it doesn't start with our behavior. It is a status that God gives that enables our behavior. Because we live in a story. The voice in our head is very clear. It is a voice of God that came as Jesus. He lived. 
He died, and he was resurrected back to life. That's the story that we as followers of Jesus enter, and it's a grand story. In fact, we act it out. You might wonder what this hot tub-looking thing is over on the side of our sanctuary. That's a baptistry. In our baptism, we act out this story of Jesus, that just as he lived, we enter the water. And as he died, we get plunged down in the water, only for a moment, don't worry. And we're raised back up out of that tomb into a new life where we live again, eternal life forever with Christ. And that's where everything gets started. And it's at this point that a lot of times Christians, well-intentioned, begin backpedaling. Oh yeah, well, I know you're a Christian, but we, we all make mistakes. We all sin. We all have errors. It's no big deal. And we kind of look at ourselves, and even though we're living in this story, we're walking a particular way up the mountain, we hear the voices that call us back down the mountain. Voices that take us back into the pit, back into the direction of our old way of life, and these voices carry us. So what I want to do quickly is kind of summarize for you how Paul answers this question, this voice in his head of, do we keep on sinning? And I'm going to answer it in three ways, not go into a lot of detail, and give you the verses that you can go back and look at at another time. So the first answer that Paul gives to should I go on sinning is, this is a big surprise, no. In verse 1 of chapter 6 through verse 4, he says, no, you died to sin and you're now alive to Christ. You've been given eternal life. So no, you don't continue sin. It's as if our location has changed. It's as graphic as this. Can you imagine living your life from a casket below ground? And compare that to living your life walking on squishy grass with bare feet. Those are two different ways to live. I mean, in one, you, you're in a tight casket, you have limited oxygen. In the other, you have unlimited oxygen. When you choose to live in the dominion of grace, you are choosing a brand new location where you are dead to your old way of living. So that's one answer. A second answer that Paul gives comes from verses 15 through 23, where he says, we once were enslaved to sin, but now we are enslaved to righteousness. Well, that sounds strange. We're trading one master for another, a master that leads to death for a master that leads to life. It's a change in how we are dictated and guided in our life. And so the example that I could think of is a lot of us tend to be guided by our desires. What do we want? What do we desire? What feeds our will? And whenever we're guided by that kind of direction in our life, it's kind of like if we were to get in the car with someone who is completely drunk and this inebriated person has the wheels of our car and we're putting our life in their hands. They can go wherever they want. They can weave wherever on the road that could bring us to death or bring us to some kind of physical harm. If you choose to go down the trail where your desires are your master, there's no telling where they will lead you. This is a change for a new master where you're enslaved to righteousness and what is good. All right, so the third one. The third one jumps out in verse 
1 of chapter 7. In this one, he says, you used to belong to sin, but now you belong to Christ. It's a new relationship. You used to be, have tied the knot with a, an old way of living, but now you've tied the knot with a new Lord, with a new direction. And you're headed in this new marriage. And, and in the same way that a, a new marriage might have new priorities and new responsibilities, so too does heading off in this new direction. All right, now you're totally surprised by my answers to this question of do we contend, continue in sin? Here we are in church, you're listening to a preacher, and the answer is no, we don't continue in sin. So it's, it's no surprise that we hear Paul say, be dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's no surprise that we're not supposed to be enslaved to sin. We're supposed to be enslaved to righteousness, nor that we are to actually belong to Christ. Well, here's the deal. A lot of us don't believe that it really applies to us at all. I mean, why not remain in sin? I mean, why, why bother with this? I don't really have a choice. I'm always making mistakes. I, I always have errors. It's just who I am. And so we think, I, I don't really have any agency to change, and so that's just the way it's going to be. And we let sin hang around in our life. We let it just exist. And there's kind of two ways that, that we deal with this. Maybe Christians will say and complain, you know, I'm just stuck. I'm stuck. My life just seems to be a mess. And yet we don't look and see that we're still harboring tons of anger. We won't forgive people. Sometimes we hang on to things that have hurt us for years and decades. We're harboring up unconfessed sin in our, low, our own life. We don't really want to serve. You know, church is just maybe something that we're just to show up at. It's not something that's transforming us. And yet we're surprised that our life doesn't quite fit together. Now that might be one direction that one could head. It's kind of like this. If you are cheating on your spouse and your spouse is a little jealous and you, you, you come to your spouse and you say, yeah, I can tell that you're really jealous and I just want you to know how much that means to me. And I just need you to know that I'm going to continue cheating because I really value that jealous love. It just means so much to me. And I, I want to nurture that. It doesn't make any sense, right? That conversation is going to end very quickly. And yet sometimes that's what we think. We think that holiness or change in our life is something that we can set aside. That if we live exactly like our neighbor, exactly in the angry or without God type of living, focused in on feeding our own pleasures, just like we see everywhere. If we do that, then somehow we'll stumble into a different result. We'll fall into some kind of holy life and we'll actually be a different person. Does that even make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. Does it make sense to shrug our shoulders and not think that we might have to make some changes that maybe one hour a week in church or a couple of hours in group in our week that we give over to God, maybe that's not enough compared to the five hours of watching television per day. That maybe the voices in our life are so small when it comes to God and so expansive of the voices that head us back down the mountain, back into the pit, back into our old ways of living. 
Sometimes it takes significant change, 30 days, 90 days, where every day you're putting yourself in a position to pray to God, to listen to God in Scripture. You're putting yourself regularly around other people who are seeking God too to make that easier. Well, that's one way Christians can go, is to say, you know, I just haven't made much of a change and my life's still a mess. There's actually another way. Another complaint that Christians sometimes have, I'm doing everything right. I'm going to church. I'm serving. I'm checking off the list. And yet my life still isn't where I want it to be. In this case, sometimes we assume that our virtue or our practice of doing these things somehow is going to make our life easier or will eliminate all difficulties. And that's not the case. It's not the case when you serve a Lord who was willing to suffer and die. Sometimes this journey is a difficult one, and it takes hard choices and changes that take more than 90 days of integrating new habits into our life. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to go with two examples that Paul shares that I think might take this home a little bit. Two illustrations that might connect with us. And one might be familiar to you. It's at least more appealing. And one is maybe going to surprise you a little bit for how I put a spin on it. At the very end of chapter 7, Paul does this thing where he answers the question that a lot of us ask of, why do I always get stuck in the same old sins? Have you looked in the mirror and said that? Have you been to your own thoughts and say, I, I just am making these same error. I find that I'm constantly angry or that I'm not kind to other people, Right? And you look and you wonder, you know, watch, no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to get out of it. Well, Paul has this kind of conversation, another one of these voices in his head, where he says, the good that I want to do, I do not do. But the thing that I hate, I end up doing. And even though I will the good, it's this whole tongue twister thing, right? Are you familiar with this? And we go to this and we say, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. It's so frustrating where I'm trying to do what's right and I can't. And in some ways, it really connects with us because it carries this idea of wanting to do what's good and pairing that with our inability to actually pull it off. Surprisingly, I don't think Paul is having some kind of internal dialogue with himself that he's not really living the right way. I think he's being poetic and rhetorical. Why is this? Because I don't think Paul is a schizophrenic. I think he's very consistent. You know what he says elsewhere? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he said, I followed the law perfectly. I was blameless. I don't think Paul is wrestling with individual sins. I think he's talking about the broken relationship that humans have with God. People that are stuck so in their own heads that they're not willing to take the step toward God and walk away from a death trap of thoughts. Now, the reason I think that is I don't think Jesus came to set up some new moral code or that now we have this morally superior law to overcome the law of Moses. No. I think what happened is that God came in Christ and He rescues us. He rescues us from the dominion of sin and establishes relationship with us in a way that we couldn't have it otherwise. 
this relationship that's broken between God and humans, God makes possible again. Now, you might not buy into that. That might seem strange, which brings me to my second example, which will be even stranger to you. It shows up in the first part of chapter 7. Now, we've all had broken relationships, right? This room has been touched by marriages that have ended because of the death of a spouse. Or they've ended, they've terminated because of divorce. And two parties go different ways, right? We all have faced these broken relationships. So the example that Paul gives is of a woman whose husband dies. And he says, once that husband dies, she's no longer legally obligated to that husband. She's able to marry whoever she wants. Whenever a marriage is terminated, whenever it ends, that law part of it is over. I mean, you lose everything. In divorce or death, you even lose your in-laws, right? That could be a good thing or a bad thing in my case. I would not want to lose my in-laws. Well, here he's making a very important point. You can be married to someone on paper, but not living with them, Not, not supporting them, not providing any kind of financial assistance to them at all. You can be married in a legal way, and yet there's no relationship. And Paul points out that just saying that you're married doesn't mean that you have relationship. So here's why this example is so important. Sometimes we get worried about our mistakes and the things that we do, and we obsess about those sins, right? And we might think that that puts us in a different relationship with God. Well, we can also obsess about how virtuous and good we are. And yet Paul says that Christ came to die to the law and die to sin. Here's the verse I want you to underline and look at. It shows up in chapter 7, verse 4. In the same way, my friends, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We've died to the law. We don't have to listen to these voices that want to drag us downward. It doesn't matter how virtuous we are or how many mistakes we've made. Christ died to destroy the effects of the law. So my strange example is is that this is almost like a positive description of a marriage that ends in death or divorce, a, a failed first relationship where it's not a good relationship at all. And Christ comes in and dies for us, strangely, not just to take away the effects of the marriage, to say that marriage is done, but to become our spouse, to become the one that we are married to. And so we're entering into this whole new relationship with God, a relationship that begins in baptism where we live and are buried into water and raised up to live again. God frees us from bad marriage and is our new spouse. And yet so often we turn our attention to the crazy voices in our head that lead us downward, back to the pit, back to the place of death. And in so many ways, we all have failed first relationships. 
I don't know what voices are in your heads, what things that you listen to, of what your parents say, or how you might be hard or gentle on yourself. And you have to pay attention to those voices because most of them are wrong. We need to hear clearly the voice of God who comes in faith, the faith of Jesus, comes to his death so that we can deal with sin entirely and put it behind us and be able to live with him. And yet, that gives us a whole new approach where we're not obsessing about the mistakes. We're not thinking that our behavior either puts us in or kicks us out. Instead, we realize that God has changed our status. He has brought us into relationship with Him in a whole new way. And that motivates our behavior to treat our spouse differently, to treat our boss differently, to no longer excuse the sin that's in our life because we look and we see what happens. We know what the pension plan is if we're going to pursue the life of death, this downward path. So I have to tell you one more crazy thing, one voice that was in my head to let you know how deep I'm into Romans. I woke up at like 3 a.m. and I'm hearing in my mind, confess your sin and there's no condemnation in Christ. And those of you that are big on Scripture might hear chapter 6 about sin. And then chapter 8 that comes and says there's no condemnation. I thought, oh, this is great. This is going to work for the sermon. It, it, it doesn't. I'll, you'll see in a minute. So I go downstairs and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to look and see about Paul telling me to confess sin. And I look and I can find nowhere in Paul where that's what he does. Every time Paul talks about confession, he talks about confessing Christ. Relationship with Christ. Not individual sin. And I scratched my chin and I kept looking and I thought, well, maybe repentance is in there. Maybe Paul will say, repent from your sin, you know, turn your life around, and then, then you'd be able to receive this no condemnation. And I kept looking. Couldn't find it. It's not the way Paul talks about it. There's one place in chapter 2 where he says repent or turn your life around. And you know what it's from? From judging other people. Convicting them of sin. And so when I look at this and when I hear that midnight conversation, you're going to think I'm crazy, I know. But for me, I see that it's about being patient and doing good. And seeking the presence of God. Seeking to confess who Christ is. That God, just like we've learned, comes to us in Christ Jesus. And so while the voice of James that I'm sure that you're hearing, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive you, that's a really important moment. An ongoing moment where we do confess sin and we lay it out there to break the pattern that it has on us. We need that. But we should also be confessing Christ the relationship that we're supposed to have with Christ, the relationship that God repairs, where we can leave the dominion that leads to death, knowing that Christ has died to it. Presenting our bodies as an instrument, a tool, not for death, but for righteousness, knowing that we belong to Jesus Christ. And when we belong to Christ, it means we're going to pursue relationship with him. We're not going to listen to the voices. Those scattered snippet voices 
in our heads of who we're supposedly identified as by what we've done, we're squelching those voices and opening ourselves up to a whole new life, a whole new way of living where actions reflect what God has done in our life. So, if you find yourself right now in kind of a joyless existence, afraid, maybe fault-finding with yourself or with other people, if you just really feel hopeless, then I want to tell you to leave the pit. To not listen to the voices that would have you live and exist in the dominion of sin and death. Let it have its own reign, but it doesn't have hold of you as a believer in Christ. Go up the trail. The trail where we ignore and silence and squelch voices that would drag us down. To hear that Jesus is Lord and that he welcomes us into relationship with him. Let's pray. Eternal God, maker of heaven and earth, thank you. We just don't understand how you look so kindly upon us and how you have come and lived among us and showed us that we have a whole new marriage, a whole new relationship, a partnership with you where we're not defined by the things that we've done in the past. But we're enabled to become more like your son, enabled to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you be with each one of us as we think about our own baptism and begin to really get serious that we've died to that old way of living. Or maybe we think about baptism for the very first time, of stepping into this story, of living this life that reorients and changes every relationship from our marriages to our, the way we treat our kids to how we treat our co-workers. Father, would you come as the one who has made us, who loves us, and who wants to live in us. Would you come and transform us? We ask this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.